The new Republican Party is organized into, again, four rough factions around two new questions. To what extent should uh, the Republican Party be organized around MAGA principles? And to what extent should Donald Trump be the leader of those principles? And the key group that will decide the nomination is the third or so of the voters who I call MAGA adjacent. These are people who still like Trump. They like many of his personal characteristics. They like his policy deviations. Um, But they're willing to look beyond Trump. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. You've been doing the show for a year. Thank you for being part of it, for subscribing. If you haven't, please do that. And you know that the objective of this show is to sit down with a smart person each week. And generally, there's some agreement. Sometimes there's almost universal agreement. Sometimes there's disagreement. But always, the conversation is great. And hopefully, it's a service to you because of the guest. That's a way of saying that you're really going to enjoy this week's guest. You probably know him, at least know his work. Henry Olson, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and columnist at the Washington Post. But if you don't know him, you are in for a great treat. My friend, Henry Olson, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Kevin. And you know, I have to say this for your sake, you know, you write at the Washington Post. So people are thinking, what's Robert's up to? And they may even know if they're perceptive that you and I don't always agree on things. Uh And yet, I think this is true. It is for my sake. The moment we met, the literal moment we met, we have been friends ever since. That is correct. Because I appreciate your intellect. I appreciate your objectivity. Even when you disagree with me or with Heritage, it's always thoughtful. And I might come away saying, well, I just can't wait to sit down with him and explain why he's wrong. But that's not what this podcast is about. Mm -hmm. It's about having a conversation, which we need more of in America. Yeah, that's absolutely what we need more of. And, you know, I think we need more of conservatives talking to other conservatives and listening to other conservatives, but particularly talking to the middle of America, people who share many conservative ideas, but not all of them. And and you and I, actually, we agree on far more than we disagree, which is which is also important, but you and I have a certain skepticism, shall we say, about Washington, which is a lead in to a question that I ask a lot of guests, and that is, how in the world did you come to do the work that you're doing? Because you are, I mean, all, no patronizing here, you are considered one of the foremost analysts, among other things, of the conservative movement of Republican Party politics. Well, uh, I started in your world. I was a think tank executive for almost 20 years, of executive, not executive vice president, vice president in charge of research. I was the president of the Commonwealth Foundation in Pennsylvania in the late 1990s. Uh, but increasingly, I felt I had something to say that I wanted to say something about where conservatism ought to go post-Obama and why conservatism needed to renew itself rather than go down the old road. And so I had been a political junkie and a political analyst privately, and I used uh, turned that publicly, uh, left my job as the uh, vice president and director of the National Research Initiative at the American Enterprise Institute to become do exactly what everyone tells you to do in career class, you know, which is that uh, when you're a 51-year-old man uh, in a stable, uh, well-paying job with children and a mortgage, that you should always follow your dream. Um, uh, I, I did follow my dream, and it's paid off fabulously. It has, and and I am not at all kidding. No, no sarcasm in this comment that 
we at all of us at Heritage look forward to reading your columns, your your work otherwise, <clears throat> because it's always thoughtful. And I think to reiterate the point, we need more of that in American conservatism. I mean, that's that's always true. In fact, I think American politics writ large rests upon people doing that. But the conservative movement has been greatly fragmented a few times in its modern history. That mm-hmm. certainly has been the case in the last several years. Why do you think that's so? Well, you know, cons- movement conservatism started in the 1950s uh, and took, gathered steam over the succeeding decades because it was trying to answer the questions of the time. And the question of the time had to do with what should the role of the federal government be? What should the United States and the Western world do with respect to then threatening Soviet Union and global communism? Well, those questions have largely been resolved, that the federal government is not going away, but it's not necessarily uh, going on autopilot of growth, which is what it seemed in the 50s and the 60s. And the Soviet Union is on the dustbin of history, as Ronald Reagan predicted it would be. Um, And so we have new questions. But the conservative movement is struggling to answer those new questions. And that's why it's fragmented, is that reiterating the old answers to all questions is not answering the new questions. And new conservatives are saying, actually, I think we should rethink the answer that was appropriate in 1962 for 2022. And what do you think are the inflection points since the 1950s? Maybe it's just two or three of them that that are positive inflection points. What I mean by that is where conservatives realized, oh, in spite of what's causing us to be fragmented mentally or intellectually, that makes sense. Because in in that question, of course, coming from the president of Heritage, I'm looking for a lesson for today. Yeah. Well, There was an understanding in the beginning uh, that conservatives needed to talk with one another. And that was something that William F. Buckley, back when conservative publications were rare, uh, featured in National Review, is that the editors disagreed with each other. And that culminated in a series of essays uh, that Frank Meyer uh, brought together, uh, which led to the fusionist consensus. Uh, which I think is a little bit misnamed because fusion means to take things that are separate and to make one out of them. And really what they did was create a confederation, you know, which is to say, we'll agree on this and disagree on that, but we have these things in common. So they never really fused. But what that did was allow the fighting to stop uh, and direct the fire at a common enemy, which was rampant statism uh, backed up by the specter of the Soviet Union. So that was inflection point one. Um, inflection point two, I think, is uh, the challenge of the George W. Bush administration, which is that after the fall of the Soviet Union and the adaptation of Clinton so that he says the era of big government is over, which isn't true. But what he really should have said was the era of ever expanding government is over. Well, conservatism had kind of won those questions. Um, so then the question is, what's next? And George W. Bush tried to pose an answer that wasn't really grounded in conservative principle. It was ad hoc political, and I'm speaking to a Texan, so I understand that maybe as a Texan you might have more... Um, favorable notions to uh, the last Texan to sit in the Oval Office. I I respect the man, but in hindsight, realize the truth of what you're saying. Yeah. I I was a Bush person, too. I was a Bush person in 1999, Bush person in 2000, and by the end, I 
okay, we've gone in the wrong direction. Remember, you yeah, are does, speaking to a recovering neocon, so that uh, lets you know what I think. Yeah, he, now he doesn't go, yeah, he, didn't, he didn't get everything wrong, got a lot of things right, but it was ultimately adaptation founded on a principle that was never fully grounded in conservatism and never fully articulated in a way that it could gain adherence, which is to say his compassionate conservatism was an attempt to found a new conservatism, but it was never really gelled. And so what that meant was that conservatism found itself at war with one another because you had people who were going along with that to some degree, people who were going against, and of course new questions are coming up. And new questions of what do we do with this globalized trade? Uh, where America is not always going to be the cheap, high-quality provider. What do we do when there's uh, no global power capable of taking us out, and how do we respond when it begins to see that there is one? And, of course, cultural questions, that when modern conservatism is founded, and even through the Reagan administrations, America is largely a cautiously Christian country. Um, and by the Bush era, we were in the middle of the culture war which is because of people changing their mind about questions relating to society and family and individual liberty uh, and religion, uh, which meant that those questions were new, which the old consensus never answered because it never had to answer. So that's the second inflection point. And we're sitting here in, we've been arguing now in various ways for 14, 16 years and Donald Trump's ascendancy, uh, threw a new wrench into it. It forced people who are Republicans to see how they were out of step with many of their voters. Um, and we're still in that phase of seeing whether or not conservatism can either find a new consensus or maybe even, heaven forbid, fuse in a way that brings everyone together, not simply as allies, but as common friends. I want to ask about or what we will talk about your analysis of what happened in the midterm elections 2022, and then the follow-up question about 2024 and the, all of the, the various dynamics concerning President Trump, both as former president and, and at least one of the, the major leaders of, of the movement. But I want to stay, if you don't mind, on this, this sort of intellectual plane mm -hmm. for a moment, because I'm, I'm struck by how much sense your, your short but excellent response makes about these inflection points. So on this kind of intellectual level, if I may, on not just a think tank level, but just kind of how Americans behave, what did Trump introduce into that existing fragmentation of the movement? Was, it, was, there, a, was there a clarification or an aggravation or something of both? So um, I would say something of both. Uh, but more of uh, a uh, aha moment, which a lot of people are still refusing to say aha over. Um, so it was clear to anyone who wanted to actually look at what real Americans thought that the old consensus no longer held dominant sway over even Republican Party voters, which is say they were more open to large government, they were more open to um, a, a different role in the world, they're more animated by cultural questions than they had been 20 years before. What Donald Trump does is, before Donald Trump, let me just go back, I saw the Republican Party as divided into two groups, uh, largely. Uh, the what I call the louder and clearer conservatives, people who said, no, we actually need to turn right and just be clearer and louder about uh, the old uh, consensus. And then what I call the clothes and cosmetics conservatives, people who thought uh, there's nothing wrong with what moderate conservatism can have. People just don't understand us. We just 
put lipstick on the pig, people will kiss the pig. Obviously, I was never favorable to that school. You're also known uh, as Chamber of Commerce conservatives, right? Uh, largely, largely. Uh, yeah, the fact is, though, pre-Trump, the reason why movement conservatives did not nominate people, and this is my book, The Four Faces of the Republican Party, co-authored with University of New Hampshire professor Dante Scala, is that the largest single faction of Republican primary voters were business conservatives, Chamber of Commerce conservatives. Movement conservatives were split between secular economic first movement conservatives and religious culture issue first religious conservatives. And 25% of Republican presidential primary voters were moderates who didn't want conservatism in any stripe. So if you got a unified Chamber of Commerce conservative candidate, the moderates would always team up behind that person to beat the movement. And that was the dynamics of every one of these races, uh, with the, the one exception of when uh, John McCain emerges as the moderate, then the movement gets behind George W. Bush, who was the business conservative candidate. So what, what Trump does is bring a, a, a whole new way. You know, I used, if I had been a doctor back then, I would have said that the louder and clearer conservatives diagnosing the Republican Party would say, well, you know, you've got, you've got a head cold. And the clothes and cosmetics conservatives you'd look at and say, well, they say, he says you've got allergies. And I would have said, actually, the party has a brain tumor. And Don, Donald Trump was the brain tumor candidate. And he represented the silent plurality of not just Republican primary voters, but what people don't appreciate is that he brought millions of people who, not, who were Republican general election voters into the primary. New people coming out of droves, people who weren't doctrinaire conservatives, but they liked his brand of conservatism, who would be nationalist first, moderately conservative on cultural issues, especially as it pertains to family, but not necessarily as it pertains to religion. Militantly nationalist, but not interested in neocon adventures. Wanting small government, but a government that also helped them with trade and with entitlement policy. And he won. And we're dealing with that world. How do you see that unfolding over the next several years, still not getting into 2022 and 2024 election cycles particularly, but again, on this this interesting level of both yeah. an intellectual level as well as a grassroots level. Yeah, well, <laughs> again, where the center of the Republican Party is on the grassroots level is wanting limited but energetic government. Uh, they don't want to tear down the state, but they don't want the state to be the be all and end all but they want a state that's there to help them deal with things they can't deal with on their own. Uh, whether it's, you know, you can't stop millions of people coming across the border. You need the state. You can't stop people uh, who are engaging unfair trade practices, who are pricing Americans out of good paying jobs. You need the state. You know, most people can't save up enough to uh, have a comfortable retirement. They need the state in order to do that. And so that's where the center of Republican uh, opinion is. And what we're seeing is an intellectual movement that is starting to put policy meat on those instincts. So it becomes not just an instinct, which is what Donald Trump had, but a series of proposals, which is what Donald Trump needed. And so you've got, of course, in any party, people who are more or less comfortable with that. And so we're having that discussion. We're having that debate. And it's being, I love the fact that it's becoming in the open because for many years it was repressed. And that was to the parties and to the movement's detriment because 
you need to have the discussion in the open to come to the consensus that allows you to then move on to victory. If you're repressing that, you can't build the intellectual policy and grassroots framework that is the hallmark of a successful political entity. One of the reasons, and I, and I, I mean this, that I love reading your columns, which I, I don't miss, I uh, always read them, and love talking to you is that you articulate better than I can what our rationale is at the Heritage Foundation right now. And this, this, is, this is what I mean, mm -hmm. where the policy and principles and politics merge, being a guy kind of focused on ideas first and foremost. What I, what I realize in listening you say this is something that I just started speaking about since the midterms, and that is, and keep in mind, at Heritage, we can't endorse a candidate for mm -hmm. anything. This is not an endorsement, but regardless of what happens with President Trump in the Republican nomination in 24, regardless of what happens in the general election, thinking in terms of 5, 10, 25-year periods, mm -hmm. that it's incumbent upon the institutional right, as it were, mm -hmm. Heritage and others, to incorporate into conservatism these policy wins of the Trump administration, of which there are many. But as important as those policy wins, as important as the judicial appointments, also the approach, which is this limited but energetic government. I think if Alexander Hamilton were sitting here with us, he would say, exactly, that's what I meant by referring to a vigorous executive, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting for two guys who appreciate American history that some of these things come full circle, sometimes with political and movement leaders you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. And, and by that, you know, being someone who's very grateful to President Trump and his administration, uh, not at all derogatory, but uh, America has a way of creating these leaders. We're going to talk about that. But before we do that, what in the world happened with the midterm elections? Because I think both you and I were on the record saying there'd be at least a modest red wave. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I think happened. The key constituency in this election, uh, which I identified in an August column of mine, was the people who somewhat disapprove of the president. Is that if you go back in exit polls, which being a bit of a nerd, I do regularly, um, and look, you know, if you approve of the president, you are 80 to 95% likely to vote of the president's party. And if you strongly disapprove of the president, you're like 95% or more likely to vote against the president's party. The people who determine the election then are the people who somewhat disapprove of the president. And historically, they voted against the president's party by 20 to 40 points. And they were about 10% of the total electorate. People have very strong opinions, but they were still that 10%. Uh, the Democrats won them. You know, you make that shift and say, okay, let's say it was on the low end of the old scale and you put it different. I mean, instead of carrying the House vote by nearly three points, they would have carried it by five points. Well, that's where I thought it was going to be, was five, five and a half points, because I thought that they would win, they being the Republicans, would win at least the historic low among those people. Why did Republicans break decades or many years of midterm pattern and blow it? Uh, I think the Democrats were successful in turning the midterm into a choice rather than a referendum. Uh, they tried very hard to throw everything in the kitchen sink at Republicans, and I think they created enough doubt among people who somewhat disapprove of the president, who are likely not to be partisan Republicans, likely not to be movement conservatives, that they said, we don't like Biden, 
we wish you'd be going in a different direction, but we're not willing to give the Republicans the keys to the car. And then you add it, and you have to say that there were candidates uh, who won close primary elections, who were backed by Donald Trump, who had not run for office before, um, and they almost all lost. Uh, as notable successes like J.D. Vance, who won, uh, but most of the Trump candidates lost, um, and they were one of the reasons why the Republicans lost in the Senate, is that Trump endorsed candidates who were neophytes, lost in Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania. And what was telling there was that typically in the modern era, a candidate outruns the president of their party by two to four points. Um, very few people before this cycle in the last eight years had outrun the president's job approval by more than five points. They, against the Trump candidates, they outran by eight to nine points. Against the non-Trump candidates, they outrun by the normal three or four points. And I think that's been called the five-point disadvantage, which is why Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, and, uh, and Blake Masters lost. And that's something that people need to come to grips with, is that for a key segment of the electorate, that sort of person is not acceptable, even against the mainstream, or in the case of John Fetterman, a not necessarily fully capable Democrat. And so regardless of where someone is in their thinking about President Trump as a, as a candidate in 2024, mm -hmm. regardless of, of their level of gratitude for his administration, for him as a leader, it seems as if the reality, for better or for worse, of the midterm elections is that in those cases you mentioned, there is a real drag. There is a real drag. Let's put this in perspective. Um, go back to 2016 when he didn't, his victory did not shock me. You know, I wrote an election memo that was widely derided. It was, I was not writing for the Post then, so it was published in National Review that said, hey, you know, I think kind of Trump's going to lose, but I think he's got a better chance of winning than Hillary. He's got a chance of winning by more than three percentage points in the popular vote. Um, and what the key constituency in that election was, was the 18% of people who didn't like both candidates. Um, in October and in September, according to the battleground GW poll, uh, they were largely undecided. But what they were, were as I've written before years ago, were people who were disproportionately Republican-leaning on issues, college-educated suburban men who were fathers. Um, they didn't like Trump's character, but they preferred him on issues, and they didn't like Hillary. And it, what happened was at the last minute, they elected Trump. What's happened in the last three elections, uh, or in 2018 and 2020, was they swung to the Democrats. And what happened in 2022 was enough of them didn't swing to the Republicans, particularly in these suburban areas, that uh, they again voted what they've been voting for the last four elections. We would like a Republican who is fighting, who is basically on the center right, but who's not got that sort of characteristic. Uh, that typifies Trump as opposed to somebody like a Ron DeSantis or somebody like another candidate or, or conservative who does fight but is not unconventional and over the top. And the fact is the same constituency has voted the same way with the same concerns uh, in the last four elections and 
good political analysts should see this and conservatives who want to win should figure out how do we stop this. So using that analysis, which makes a lot of sense to me in that rubric, if you will, it seems that the the double-digit victories by Governor DeSantis in Florida, Governor Abbott in Texas, mm-hmm. and if not double-digit, sizable victory by Governor Kemp in Georgia mm-hmm. actually is evidence for what you're saying. Yeah, I think it is, is that you know, it, nobody says that Abbott, Kemp, and DeSantis are uh, go-along, get-along rhinos. They're not full-blown-on MAGA diehards. You know, let's be fair about that. But what they are willing to do is stand up for things. They are willing to get beyond the traditional business issues that animated the old business wing of the party while still being responsive to them, not a sticking a finger in the eye of moderate business conservatism, but not being beholden slavishly to it. And yes, they were able to win in those suburban areas uh, that did not support uh, other Republicans to the same degree. And, you know, the thing is with DeSantis in particular is it was a statewide victory that it wasn't just DeSantis. Marco Rubio got outspent by $30 million. He won by 16 points. And that wasn't a gimme. Uh, Hispanics didn't move from 2020 appreciably in most of the country, although good news for conservatives, they stayed in the 2020. So the movement from 2016 to 2020 is real, and that's better for conservatives, but didn't go farther. But in Florida, they did, and it didn't matter whether you were Cuban or Venezuelan or Colombian or Puerto Rican or whatever your heritage was, you moved. And you have to look at that and say, hmm, something happened here. And a lesson, did something similar happen in the districts of South Texas? That there's a lot of commentary about that. And and yet, because of the mixed bag that the U.S. House races were generally for conservative candidates, it didn't it didn't seem as if this this prediction of a, a Hispanic red wave, especially in Texas, materialized fully. That's not to say that it didn't materialize at all, but it doesn't look like it was at the extent that was predicted. Yeah, you know, I, I need to look at the Rio Grande Valley more. One of the things that I found interesting on election night uh, was that um, – um, um, Monica de la Cruz Hernandez mm-hmm. uh, won her seat, which Trump had won by a few points. She gained on Trump, you know, which suggests some Hispanic movement. My uh, Mayra Flores, who was running in a Biden plus 15 seat, lost to uh, Congressman uh, Vincente Gonzalez, who district topped to run in a more favorable seat, but she gained seven points. So there, in those two seats, you saw movement. But in the seat that Cassie Garcia was running against Henry Cuellar, who has real roots in the Rio Grande Valley, he outran Biden. And so what that suggested was that there was some movement, but it wasn't uniform, particularly when you had a person who the moderate, one of the things to understand about Latinos is that they're conservative on some things, but they're not conservative on all things. So when you've got somebody who is the only pro-life person in Congress, who stood up to Biden on the border, who's basically a moderate to center-left Democrat, but with roots in the cultural community of the Rio Grande Valley Latinos, they said, hey, he's good enough for me. Other people, they said, no, not good enough for me. So who the Democrats are matters, but in a national basis. And this is why I think there might be more prospect uh, in 2024. The Democrats cannot nominate somebody who has roots in the Rio Grande Valley who is a cultural moderate with some cultural conservative traits. They cannot get that person 
through the nomination process. So what that means is that maybe you'll see it more on the presidential level in 2024 than you saw it at the local level in 2022. So let's talk about 2024. What do you think is going to happen, A, on the Republican side and B, on the Democrat side? Yeah. So I, I often get asked, uh, is it going to be a Biden-Trump rematch? Um, and my view is this is very similar to 2015 when people said it was going to be a Clinton-Bush rematch. Now, not that Jeb was president before, but it was going to be a Clinton versus a Bush, and it would be continuation of the family Certainly dynasty. expectation. Right. And so um, what happened was one of them lost, flamed out, and one of them got through with a difficult primary. And I think it is a better than 50% chance that one of those two will either not run or will not be on the nomination. I can't tell you which one, but I will be surprised if it is a Biden-Trump rematch. Now, with respect to the Republicans, the thing to understand is that the old Republican Party was divided into four factions, as I mentioned before, based around the idea, questions of how much should the Republican Party be coextensive with the conservative movement and within the conservative movement, which wing should predominate, economic concerns or cultural concerns. The new Republican Party is organized into, again, four rough factions around two new questions. To what extent should uh, the Republican Party be organized around MAGA principles? And to what extent should Donald Trump be the leader of those principles? And the C key group that will decide the nomination is the third or so of the voters who I call MAGA adjacent. These are people who still like Trump. They like many of his personal characteristics. They like his policy deviations, um, but they're willing to look beyond Trump. And But what they're not willing to do is take an unreformed old guard person because that's what they don't want. Um, so this is why in the primaries you saw a lot of people who were arguably old guard candidates running uh, hard on immigration, talking about being a fighter because they're trying to make inroads to the MAGA adjacent. The only national candidate not named Donald J. Trump who has significant credibility with this group is Ron DeSantis. And that's why he has emerged to be the leading contender is because he is like Greg Abbott or like Brian Kemp ran as governor in a way that is acceptable to traditional what I call old guard Republicanism, but is also credible to the MAGA adjacent. But we don't know how DeSantis will hold up under scrutiny. Yeah, that that kind of lesson has been borne out many times oh, yeah. uh, every four years. So it'll be interesting to see. So let's talk about kind of last policy uh, analysis question before I ask you the proverbial last question on the show, which is always about hopefulness, just to give you a little bit of a heads up. Okay. 2022, 2024 election cycles, we've covered what will happen in between, most of which we can't fully predict, of course. We'll, we'll have a lot to say about the 2024 outcome. But what to home in on one part of that, what do you think conservatives in Congress can and should do in terms of their policy agenda, knowing that very little, if any of it, is is actually going to pass the Senate and ultimately be signed by President Biden? Yeah. I think there's two things that they need to do, and particularly the House, because the House is where conservatives can actually get things to this to the next chamber as opposed to block things. Um, I think what they need to do is focus like a laser on issues and concerns that animate and are persuasive to that voter who is willing to vote for Brian Kemp, but is not willing to vote for a Herschel Walker. Uh, so what does that mean? It doesn't mean being squishoid at all. But what it means is 
saying, okay, where do these people agree with us and disagree with the democratic consensus? And that is, as a result, likely to be a central part of any Republican nominee's platform. You know, you cannot, as a Congress, push a platform on a presidential nominee. But what you can do is anticipate what any of them have to say in order to get nominated and amplify that. Number one that jumps out in mind is immigration. That Biden has a low job approval rating, and he's always been eight to ten points lower on immigration. This is a place, the southern border, where people agree with Republicans and with conservatives. And I would say, put together, and this will be a column of mine when we know who the speaker is, uh, so you get a preview of my column, you know, which is find three or four key issues that combine uh, Republican agreement with the middle. And I suspect, from what I've seen in polling, is that building the wall is not the thing I would lead with because that tends to be something that is not viewed as positively by the people in the middle. But stopping the border surge is, spending more on border patrol is, quick and rapid, you know, ending catch and release is. And then, you know, the one that I have wanted to push that actually in a poll I took in January of 2021, only of Trump voters was more popular than the wall. But that never gets advanced because of business concerns is mandatory e-verify that it's one right now the approach to controlling illegal migration is essentially similar to the approach of the war on drugs keep them out uh but don't don't have an effective policy to dry up demand well if you have mandatory e-verify so that anybody who wants to uh, hire somebody, or you can use executive power and look and see what what options do I have to like say that in order to get a business deduction for your wages and benefits, you have to dem- use. There's lots of ways to get it. You have to be legally in this country. You dry up the demand. 18% of Guatemala's GDP is remittances from the United States. They're coming here as single people to work and send the money out of the country. So stop them. I think people would agree with that. And I think that would put the Democrats in a very difficult position. So that's what I would do there. The other thing is you can't overplay your hand in the must-pass issues. You can't overplay your hand with the budget. You can't overplay your hand with the um, debt ceiling. You can't overplay your hand with the annual defense authorization. These are the three must-pass things. So don't risk a government shutdown, but make a clear point make a clear point that, again, is something that unites Republicans with the base. So if they have to back down to a, you can both look like you're acting in the national interest and you know that the people will side with you. And maybe you can get something on that. Those are the two things that I think are achievable and doable. And anything more risks making, dividing the could-be conservative voter with the conservative base and decreases the chance of a conservative victory in 2024. Some really good lessons there, and and I like them because they point to what has been absent conservatism for too long, although there have been exceptions, and that is an aspirational vision for what we will do as conservatives when we're in power. Yes. And you, you have read enough Burke to know that the ghost of, of Burke reminds me every day that conservatives are not very good at governing. Well, the thing is, one of the uh, conservatives are good at government at the state level. 
Yes. At this, that doesn't mean they're perfect. There are lots of opportunities, you know, I think, are like the proverbial $100 bill lying on the ground. You know, economists tell you, you know, libertarians tell you that can't exist because the market would already have picked it up. Well, no, actually, it does exist. People like Donald Trump saw a $100 bill lying on the political ground and picked it up. And, oh, wow, there was a $100 bill on the ground. Um, but they are good at governing at the state level. They are lowering taxes. They are largely pushing a conservative cultural agenda. Uh, again, they could move faster and stronger in theory, but they're not very good at governing at the federal level. And I think what happens at the state level is people accept a lot of the things state government does. They don't, but at the federal level, there's still that struggle, you know, and the fact is we're going to have social security, Medicare. It's going to be at the federal level. So maybe we should think about who should get it and who shouldn't and what price they should pay. You know, like why we are spending billions of dollars a year to subsidize seniors who have millions of dollars in the bank because we subsidize their Medicare premiums uh, with tax. Well, we don't subsidize with tax dollars. We borrow money from, you know, we create inflation by borrowing it from the Fed. Hey, you know, maybe they shouldn't get that. We can be for Medicaid for people who need it and against Medicaid for people who doesn't, which, oh, by the way, was Ronald Reagan's position in the 1960s before Medicare was adopted. Once again, we come full circle in this conversation. So we'll conclude this conversation. We'll have you back many times, I hope, over the years, Henry, with the proverbial question, which is in spite of all the problems mm -hmm. facing America, and Lord knows there are many, while you aren't necessarily someone who explicitly talks about hopefulness mm -hmm. and optimism. I know you well enough in this year to know that that sort of imbues your outlook. Mm -hmm. Why did you wake up in spite of those problems, hopeful about the future? I'm hopeful about the future because of the American people. That the American people still fundamentally love America. Now, we have to recognize as conservatives that there's differing interpretations of that. Uh, there, but if you ask people, do you believe in the cardinal truths of the Declaration? Do you believe that all people are created equal? I think you'd get most people who aren't on the progressive left who would agree with that. Uh, do you believe that uh, that uh, man was was uh, man was has certain unalienable rights? You know that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, I think most people believe that. And so what you have to do is enter into a conversation with where the American people are and say, actually, we represent this vision, renewing the American promise for a new generation, which is what we've been doing for 230 years. The hard left doesn't believe in those things. The hard left, you look at polls, they say there are other countries better than the United States. They will, you ask Fox asked a question, I think it was in 2020, are the American founders heroes or villains? And people on the hard left are likely to say villains as heroes, whereas most Americans say heroes. And so what you have to do is enter into a conversation with those people and say, the old questions divided us, the new questions unite us. And I think that is the political $100 bill that is sitting on the street. I don't see anyone reaching to grab it. But in 2015, I didn't see Donald Trump coming down the escalator to grab the political $100 bill that was so obviously lying on the street. So for all I know, somebody's going to do it. And six months from now, we'll be talking about that person. Thanks for that response. Most of all, thank you, Henry Olson, for being one of the really important, not just commentators, but leaders of American conservatism. It's been a joy talking to you. Thanks for having me. Joy talking to you too, Kevin. I told you that even if for some reason you weren't familiar with Henry Olson, you'd enjoy the conversation. So I'm glad you know that I was right about that. 
Most of all, thanks for making this show possible, for tuning in. You know that next time we will be back with yet another person with a realistic but hopeful attitude toward the future of America. Thanks. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.